there's much to be gained still from a vibrant prayer life, you know, something to gain for ourselves, for our community, for our families, our church, for, uh, for our city. So we want to do this. We want to immerse ourselves in this. And so over the last nine weeks, we've uh, come across some really amazing prayers throughout the Psalms, and we've, been, uh, we've encountered some amazing challenges along the way as well. We've been challenged to immerse ourselves week in and week out in the Psalms. We've been challenged to mark out specific times and places uh, to pray in specific ways throughout the, the things that we've been looking at. We've been challenged and encouraged to intentionally engage in praise, to confess our sins, to cry out for help, to learn how to cry out for help when we are, are being oppressed, but also to cry out for help when we feel abandoned. We know how to cry out for those who feel abandoned and who are, are oppressed by darkness. Um, we've been called to times of open-ended prayer where we don't set a we don't, we don't schedule things right next to our prayer time where we just say, Lord, we just want to sit with you and just try and delight in, in the Lord and just experience the Lord in those times. And, and on top of all of this, we've been juggling and battling against the weaknesses of our own flesh. We've been battling our schedules, the busyness that we have there. We've been battling unseen enemies that work to prevent us from growing in our prayer life. Uh, all this has been going on over the last nine weeks. And so however you might evaluate your, your past nine weeks and how you've done, regardless of how that would, you would look at that and consider yourself a success or a failure, I hope that you have been encouraged. <laughs> Please feel encouraged. And see that in the Psalms, we are, are given form. They give us words to pray when we don't have words for ourselves. It gives us kind of a, a way to approach prayer when we feel like we're just at, loss, at a loss and we don't know how to approach God. See that the Psalms invite us in to a life of praying. So our attention this morning is on Psalm 139. That's a prayer of thanksgiving that can be called a contemplative prayer, I guess. It's a, a prayer that arises from David, the psalmist, his just sitting down and thinking about his experiences with God. He's sitting down thinking about how he knows God from Scripture and also how he knows God revealed in his own life, and his own experiences. And in these thoughts, David is moved to awe, to hope, to praise, and even to cry out for justice. So Psalm 139 invites us this morning into this way of praying, into considering who God is and what He has done, both through Scripture and in our own lives. And we allow that contemplation to guide our praying. So this morning, as we walk through David's prayer of Psalm 139, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, you can just use the worship guide. Uh, Hopefully, we're going to highlight. Well, what we'll do is we'll highlight a few uh, aspects that uh, of his contemplation, uh, and hopefully, learn in the process, or at least be encouraged in this art of praying. And then afterwards, we're going to turn back and look and ask, well, how in the world does David even get to this point? How does he come to this place where he's asking these questions and thinking these things about God? So that David's contemplative prayer focuses, I said, on at least three characteristics of God as revealed through Scripture and His own experiences. And these are, first thing is intimate knowledge, God's intimate knowledge. The second is God's intimate presence. And the third is God's intimate or thorough justice. And I'll explain these, unpack these here in a bit. But these themes are fluid, okay? They're not just outline form and they don't connect to one another. They they immerse each other and they, they... 
just cover the, the terrain of this psalm. So as we go through it, you're going to see us talking at front about this intimate knowledge. But as we get further and further on down, that intimate knowledge is still very, very applicable. And at the end of it, when he, he talks about uh, crying out against the, the wicked, uh, that's not divorced from God's knowledge. That's not divorced from God's presence. So just keep that in mind. But just for the sake of argumentation and trying to, to walk through it in, in an orderly fashion, let's look at intimate knowledge. And knowledge is a key word in this psalm. It's a very key word. In fact, verse 1 and verse 23 form what's called an inclusio or a bookend. It surrounds the psalm. It encases it. He begins by praying, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. And then he concludes by saying, Hey God, search me and know me. Know my heart. He concludes the same way. David begins his prayer with awe uh, of God's intimate knowledge of who he is. And he concludes with a joyful openness and a desire to continue being known by God in this deep and intimate way. So the conclusion of this prayer is important. We'll come back to it later. What I want us to do right now is explore the significance of God's knowledge. As I mentioned, knowledge, it's a, pow- it's a powerful word in this psalm. You can see, see some form of knowledge, whether it's know or known, uh, used seven times in this psalm. Seven times. Now, that's a significant number to the Jewish mind, because the Jewish mind looks at the number seven, and they say, oh, that means completion. That means fulfillment. So the picture that is painted through this psalm about God's knowledge, this message in the psalm is that the psalmist is fully known by God. He's completely known by God. And this thought overwhelms the psalmist, overwhelms David. Look at verses 2 through 6. He says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. It's hot. It's too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Now, the language is unambiguous. God knows him fully in every possible way. But you go before me, behind me, you surround me. You know the words before I can even articulate them, before I can speak them. God knows the psalmist in every possible way. He's fully known by God. But this is a contemplative prayer, okay? So it's not just that... David's sitting there and he's looking through a theological handbook and comes across systematic theology and it says, oh, God knows everything. And he goes, hmm, God knows everything. And that kind of starts his prayer. Notice all the personal pronouns. Notice his, the possessive determiner where he says, my, he says, you've searched me, you know me, you know my thoughts, you are acquainted with all of my ways. And these are deep personal experiences. So what I'm saying is David is contemplating, not simply because somebody gave him a chart. He's contemplating his experiences with God. He knows the Lord to be a God who knows his heart because he's read it in Scripture and because he's experienced it in his life. And this knowledge is too wonderful for him. He comes to the end of these six verses reflecting upon his experiences with God and all he can say is, this is too good. (laughs) I can't get my mind around this. He says, the God who created the universe and everything in it and beyond it knows me. He doesn't just know of me or about me, but he knows me even better than I know myself. He knows, he's acquainted with all of my ways. Before I can even articulate the words, he knows them. He knows me. 
But this knowledge is not just some kind of abstract, just empirical knowledge that God had, that God has, and, and a part of his, the object that he's looking at, right? <laughs> it's not abstract and impersonal, because embedded in this knowledge is intimate love for the one known. The Hebrew word for know, I'm not going to say it because I don't know how to speak Hebrew, <laughs> doesn't simply suggest the accumulation of a bunch of facts all right, about a particular object. <laughs> The very same word uh, communicates, so the word communicates a very deep and intimate relational dynamic. The very same Hebrew word here, used for know, is also used in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, which says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she bore a son. Talking about this intimate relationship between a husband and wife. A few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 63, and Aubrey pointed out verse 8 was a keen verse on this that said, My soul clings to the Lord, and he, His right hand upholds me. And that word clings was the very same word used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united, or cling, uh, shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one. That was the same word. And so that when David is speaking of his relationship with God, he reaches back and grabs this imagery of a love relationship between a husband and wife. And he says, this, is, this kind of relationship, this intimacy describes his relationship to God. Now, this is the very same image that is being picked up here in Psalm, 60, Psalm 139. However, the difference is the orientation, right? In Psalm 63, God, uh, David was saying, Lord, I love you this way. You know, like my soul clings to you. But in Psalm 139, the orientation is from God to David. This knowledge that God has is an intimate, intimate love. And it focuses in in this relationship to David. So as David contemplates God's intimate knowledge, he's utterly amazed and awed by the intimate love motivating God to fully know him. So that fills him with awe. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is not just God having gathering, like Google, all this data that he stores on us. God knows you. God knows you. We need to think about our own experiences with the Lord and times that God has spoken to us. Well, we've heard his voice. Well, we know his voice. Like Phil read in the gospel passage, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me. And I know them. This is an intimate love. But the prayer doesn't stop here. David's contemplation of God's intimate knowledge leads him to consider God's intimate presence. Again, I'm using the word intimate because it is just draped in God's love. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is motivating God's interaction with David. God's being. And as he thinks about this, it supplies him with hope. Because he understands God his presence to be an inescapable, and that his presence takes away threats. Now that's a bold statement, but look at verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night... Even the darkness is not dark to you. 
the light is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Now the psalmist uses these poetic and extreme generalities to emphasize that God is both inescapable. Right? He says, if I made my bed in heaven, you would be there. If I made my bed in Sheol, the place of death, you would be there. These are great extremes saying there's no escaping you. But also that God's presence will do away with every threat. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. Now darkness is the image, as a, a phrase that they just manifest chaos. It manifests uh, wickedness. It is everything that is not right, right? We need the Lord to set things right. And here he says, this is hopeful. <laughs> God, your presence is everywhere. And even if I'm surrounded by darkness, darkness does not overwhelm you. You are not overcome by darkness. You will do away with every threat. Now, I think this is a nice thought. However, there's a tension here. We've already seen through the Psalms moments where the psalmists don't feel like God is anywhere to be found, right? We looked at Psalm 13 a while back, and it starts off, How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me forever? In the Bible, words like spirit, face, and light are connected and used oftentimes synonymously to uh, describe or reference God's presence, right? So verse 7 here in Psalm 139, he says, where can I go from your spirit? You know, where can I flee from your presence, right? He's equating that. Again, in Psalm 13, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will your spirit? He feels the absence of God's spirit and presence in those times. We've seen the psalmist suffering at at the hands of accusers, of powerful enemies, and yet nothing being done. We've seen the psalmist utterly left in despair in Psalm 88, right? A few weeks ago we looked at that, and it was darkness. The very last word of the psalm is darkness. How can David here express this great hope in God's presence as being inescapable and overcoming all threats when we've seen him other places say, God, where are you? And God, there are threats, and you're not doing anything. How can David say this? Now, I don't ask that question to be cynical. I don't want to encourage you to be cynical. And I don't think that David here is self-manufacturing this kind of hope. I don't think this is fake. I don't think it's just some kind of psychological encouragement and pep talk to get him to keep believing for one more week. I think this is a hope. This hope is the expression of a paradoxical reality that's affirmed in Scripture. And what I mean by that is we live in a world that's marred by sin. We live in a world that's marred by sin, and we suffer the real effects of that sin and that marring in our own bodies and also in our relationships. However, that is not the full story. That is not the full story that we live in. Yes, it is there, but we also live in the reality that this Marring, this, marred, this marred creation is not, is not the final reality. God longs for shalom. And we've seen throughout Scripture that God wants peace. He wants to bring His restoration. And He's working towards that. We see ultimately Him inv- investing into the lives of specific people and promising to make things right and make things new. And, and eventually Jesus comes on the scene. And in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God restores brings restoration. He brings His redemption. It's a redemption, though, 
that is not fully realized. It is, has entered into this world, and it has entered into this marred creation. And so we live in this dual reality. It's kind of a weird place where uh, Christ's kingdom and God's redemption has already occurred, but it's not yet fully realized. And it's a tension, it's a paradox that we live in. Today we live with this tension. And the truth is, God has promised us to never leave us, nor forsake us. He has promised us and guaranteed this promise by giving us His Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 says that He has guaranteed this promise. He's sealed us in His Holy Spirit. So God's presence is everywhere because He's an encompassing God and darkness will be fully defeated. Think about John chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 5. John's talking about Jesus coming, and he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Now, as you and I learn to pray psalm prayers, our prayers are going to bo- express both honest insecurities and pain. We're going to cry out, How long? How long? We're going to cry out, Lord, I feel like the darkness is swallowing me up and overwhelming me. But we also will be able to pray with great confidence, a God confidence, that He is near and that He is ultimately going to be victorious. And He gives us hope. So that's an an awkward paradox that we have. uh, But Scripture both affirms it and... uh, We're called to live into that reality. And so David does, as he is thinking about God's intimate knowledge of him and God's intimate love and God's intimate presence. It stirs him. It fills him with hope because God is near. And God's ultimate victory over what is warped and broken is assured. Now, the next section, I wouldn't give like its own bullet point because I see, I mean, you could, uh, but what I see is really David has taken what he's already thought about of God's knowledge and what he's thought about of God's presence, and he kind of mingles them together and sees them working in a specific way of his own creation, right? His own coming into being. David says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. He goes on and just talks about God is still actively... uh, God's knowledge, intimate love, and knowledge is there, but His presence is there as He's weaving Him together and putting Him together. This is deeply personal and poetic language, and it elevates human life as being intrinsically valuable. Uh, a lot could be said here, uh, you know, about abortion rights or um, whatever. A lot could be said there, but I'm not going to go there. What I want us to, I do want to say that that life is a gift, and this definitely affirms that. Definitely through babies, but life is a gift. You and I woke up this morning. We received today as a gift from God. We didn't receive this day and are walking through it alone. God is near. God knows, and He loves you, and He's walking with you. And this is a gift. Live into this gift. Re- live into this reality. It's precious. This day and this life is meant to be enjoyed. And as David is reflecting on God's knowledge and His presence, it makes, it stirs in him, 
praise. He says in verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's blown away by God's attentiveness, by God's presence, by God's power, His love, and His care. And he says, my life is precious. Somebody has said that this prayer is a thanksgiving prayer. And it essentially could be, thank you for me. <laughs> and I think it's okay for us to pray that. You know, that God has an amazing love for you. And He's given you life. The reformer, John Calvin, he suggested that praise is the only appropriate response to a gift such as life. And he says, uh, commenting on life from a different psalm, (laughs) he says, Although it is by the operation of natural causes that infants come into the world and are nourished with, with their mother's milk, it's therein that the wonderful providence of God brightly shines forth. God is amazingly present in this miracle, is what he's saying. And he says, This miracle, it is true, because of its ordinary occurrences, it is made less of account because by us. Like we belittle it because it happens so often. We take it for granted. But his response here is just powerful. He says, If ingratitude did not put upon our eyes the veil of stupidity, we would be ravished with admiration at every childbirth in the world. We would be ravished with admiration. I, just, I think that's just a powerful picture when you and I see that life is a gift from God, yes, when babies are born, but yes, when I wake up in the morning and I experience this day, when we see that God's presence, His intimate presence and His intimate knowledge is here walking, us, walking with us, life is a gift. If we see that miracle, we'll be rav- we should be ravished with admiration. Praise is the only appropriate response. And so David, as he contemplates the intimate knowledge of God's presence, at w- knowledge of intimate, what was I saying? As he contemplates God's intimate knowledge and God's intimate presence at work, both in his bringing him into life, he just, he erupts in praise. It's the only, po- only appropriate response. And we should praise, praise as well. And we will later. We're going to have some more singing and we're going to have an opportunity just to thank God for life. Press into his goodness in that sense. But his prayer doesn't stop here with this long section of adoration. We're going to have that in our singing. The psalm here puzzles a lot of people. Because instead of him launching into this just amazing tirade of... Tirade's probably not the right word there. But amazing, uh, just, Lord, I love you, Lord, I love you kind of thing like he does in Psalm 63. A shift happens and there are many Christians who think at this point we need to stop following the psalmist as he leads us in prayer. <laughs> at this point, he becomes unchristian. <laughs> because Jesus tells us, right, to love our, our enemies and to pray for them. We even see Jesus praying for people when he's on the cross or about to be put, no, put on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so it seems kind of weird that uh, the psalmist would pray this way and that we would be encouraging you to pray in this way. <laughs> In fact, like this has puzzled the church for many years. Like if you look at the lectionaries, Psalm 139, whenever it comes up in the lectionary, usually doesn't include verses 19 to 20, uh, 22. And if it does, it's usually given as an optional reading. <laughs> so what do we do with this? How, what are we to make of this? 
what I think is happening here is David is saying, Lord, you are incredibly, you know, you know me, you know, not just me, but you know the world around me. I mean, think about things that you've read in scripture, right? Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses, they've been in prison, uh, enslaved for 400 something years, and he appears to Moses as Moses, I've heard, I know the, the plight of my people. God knows this, not because he, uh, he looked it up on, on Google or whatever, he, he knows it because he's... He's God, and He has this knowledge that knows intimately everything that's going on. And so God knows the everything, and God is everywhere present. We can't, we can't escape Him. And God's presence does something to wickedness. It does something. It is not overcome by darkness. And yet we live in this world that is broken. And yet we live in this world where we see strife. We see the wicked prosper. We see the wicked have their way sometimes against people. <laughs> David himself was a person who suffered uh, verbal abuse and physical abuse from, uh, from real oppressors, from real enemies. So I think at this point David has been reflecting and just praising and hoping and awing at who God is. And at this point he's like, but wait a second. <laughs> Things aren't all right. And, he, and he's, he's brought back to this, not brought back, he's just brought to a clearer realization maybe of just the reality that he lives in. And so he prays this cry, I would say, for justice, not for vengeance. And because it's that, I think it's a prayer that we can learn to pray. He says in verse 19 through 22, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil against you with malicious intent. For your enemies take your name in vain. I do, not hate, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. And we already know from David's life that he has been one who's been falsely accused, who's suffered uh, verbal and physical attacks from others by real enemies. These verses, I think, what they demonstrate is just the reality that happens when people are hurt by other people. We want to lash out, whether physically or verbally. But what we see here the psalmist doing is not running and, and lashing out physically. We see him entrusting his emotions to God. Now, those who are familiar with David's life, you know that he was no stranger to violence. <laughs> and there were times that he did lash out with violence, that he did not run to the Lord with this anger and, and, and use that as a prayer. But I think this is one of the moments where... Uh, the Psalms, what they do is they give us kind of vague generalities. One reason is so that we can't just isolate the incidences and say, oh, well, this is what happened in David's life. And it's just, that way we don't just pigeonhole it. We don't just put him in that box and say, that just fit David at that time and at that place. It leaves it general enough for us to enter into it so that those words and those experiences can be ours. And I think that's what's happening here. Is there's real hurt and pain that's experienced on David's part. And he's not, it's not right. And he cries out to the Lord in this anger. Now, what I'm saying is that this kind of praying, though often not what we're taught to do, <laughs> is the good kind of praying because it teaches us and enables us to be really human. <laughs> we can be real and genuine with our emotions. We don't have to be unfeeling robots. 
but we can really respond to things that are negative. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to bear, uh, protect ourselves with this distance and barrier. This kind of praying enables us to honestly deal with our emotions, with our pain, with our frustration at the delay of, ju- uh, of justice, when injustice has occurred. So Eugene Peterson is a guy who's written a lot about prayer and the Psalms, and, and he has a book called Answering God, and one of his chapters is called Enemies, <laughs> and he deals with these kinds of prayers. And uh, one of the things that he begins the chapters with is saying that if we're going to be people who pray the Psalms, then it's going to necessarily lead us to moments of anger. Not because the Psalms are bad and we get angry because we read the Psalms, but because the Psalms help us to participate in real life, help us to, to be honest with real life. And so he says, Psalm prayer enters into the way that things are, but it finds that the way things are is pretty bad. Evil is encountered here. Wickedness is confronted. This prayer quickens the pulse. It shoots adrenaline into the bloodstream. The people who practice this type of praying get excited. They yell. They gesture. You know, <laughs> They're engaged or soon to be engaged in the act of war. Because prayer is combat. Prayer brings us before God. And then before God we find ourselves grappling with the world rulers of this present darkness against spiritual hosts and wickedness spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now Peterson goes on to say that hatred is frequently the human experience that brings us to our feet praying for justice. We're outraged that something has occurred. Hatred can be something that catalyzes our concern for the terrible uh, violations against life all around us. You know, whether it's um, people who are, aren't being treated justly because they're immigrants, people who aren't being treated justly because of the color of their skin or because of the amount of money they have in their bank accounts. Like, those things should bother us. They should bother us. And it's okay for us to feel bothered by it. And we should run to the Lord. Allow this botheredness, this hatred, this frustration to move us to prayer. What I'm saying is that prayer does not legitimize hatred. However, it does use it. Peterson goes on and he says in this chapter that hatred is not a very promising first step to establish righteousness. <laughs> right? we don't want, we're not going to be righteous if we just start off with hatred. <laughs> However, when prayed, when hatred is prayed, it is a first step into the presence of God where we learn that He has ways of dealing with what we bring to Him that are both other and better than anything that we had in mind. But until we are in prayer, we are not teachable. So when something happens to you and it is wrong... And you feel those feelings of frustration and anger, hatred even. Those aren't necessarily bad feelings, right? Those are human emotions. Now, if you leave from there and go attack somebody, that's wrong. (laughs) But if you feel that and you run to the Lord, you cry out. Cry out for justice. 
crowd as one who has been victimized or one who has seen victimization and just say, Lord, this is not right. We need you to do something. I think that is what the psalmist is doing here in, in this prayer. And he aligns himself with the Lord. And then his conclusion is very... comes out of that and says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now, immediately when we come right out of that, we think, Are you serious? <laughs> you just want somebody to die? <laughs> you know, like, you hate people. Like, <laughs> now, there isn't a, a contradiction here. <laughs> this is, there's a, con, a congruity here. He says, God, I'm on your side. And as I think about your amazing love and how you know me intimately, and how that means you love me well. And I think about your amazing presence. Your loving presence that knits me. That gives me life. Stirs me to awe, to hope, and to praise. But also, as I see that, and I look at the realization of victimization. When I look at the realization of defeat and wickedness and darkness in our life and in our experience. It bothers him. And he responds and says, Lord, we need you. We need you. So he says, Lord, I'm on your side, and I want to continue in this relationship. So continue, search me, continue to know me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So the question is, how then, let's walking through it. So what I mean by contemplative prayer is I hope that you're encouraged throughout the week to spend time thinking about your relationship with the Lord, and do like David, and just allow these thoughts to guide you in prayer. Now briefly, we're going to just talk real quick about how does David get to these experiences with God? How does he set himself up to have this contemplative prayer time? We began the psalm series highlighting Psalm 1 and 2, uh, two pillars that we said stood as a gateway, the entrance into the life of prayer. That was Psalm 1 said, delighting in God's word. Psalm 2 said, depending upon God and His anointed one. These pillars stand as the entrance of the life of prayer, but they also form the foundation okay, of the prayer, of prayer life. So I hope you've kind of thought about that as you've read the, some of these psalms, and if you haven't, think about it. <laughs> you see those two pillars rising up in every single psalm. We see dependence, we see delight, especially in David. We see that and these are convictions that abide deep in his bones. They set a particular rhythm to his life. Now, that doesn't mean that David was perfect. We've already said that. He's a sinner. We know he's a sinner, right? His story says he's committed murder, adultery. He's created this elaborate lie to try and hide all those things. Uh, But we've also seen in the Psalms him just breaking down under the weight of that. And he's crying out to the Lord in confession, dealing appropriately with his his guilt. He's documented his confession. And we we see in those moments, we see this delight in God's Word. He trusts God to be a God who's gracious and forgiving. A God who is loving, and he depends on God for forgiveness. He depends on God for uh, life as he moves forward. Now, the fact that we are aware of David's sin, I think, is something that should encourage us, because we, as imperfect as we are, can be shaped by people can be people who are shaped by delighting in God's word and depending upon God. We too can discover what <clears throat> discover who God is and what God has done as we immerse ourselves in His word and as we think about. <laughs> Our experiences, real life experiences that God shares with us. So over the next week, use this prayer to stir you in your own praying. 
And uh, maybe you just want to sit down with these three things, thinking about God's knowledge of you, uh, His presence around you, and justice, how He's going to bring justice. I mentioned our gospel passage earlier, this amazing text where Jesus is described as the Good Shepherd. He says, I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus really is a God who has intimate love and intimate knowledge of us. He knows when you're hurting. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. Run to Him. Think about the way He speaks to you, the way that He brings comfort to you. Let Him speak to you. Let Him comfort you in those moments. And use that, those experiences, and celebrate those experiences and moments as you encounter God. Acts, the Acts passage, I think is just a really cool passage where, where Paul is preaching and uh, people are, they want to hear cool and crazy things and uh, he's wanting to share the gospel to them <laughs> or share the gospel with them. <laughs> and he, uh, he's just struck by these people are so close and he says, God, God wants us to be searching for him. And then he says, but he's not far from us. God really is near. He's present. Part of the challenge for you and I is to have eyes to see and ears to hear and to see that He is around. So as you go out this week, think about how's the Lord how's the Lord present in my life? One, He's given you life, but think about other tangible opportunities and experiences and just think about and celebrate God's nearness. And then as you encounter wrong this week, whether it's to yourself or it's wickedness or just around us, cry out for mercy. Cry out for justice. Micah six eight, the passage that ever read. This, the Micah's asking, "Shall I come to the Lord with a bunch of goats? How can I really approach God? How can I walk well with the Lord?" And the answer to that is that God requires you to love justice, to do to was it to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. Now, God is a God of justice, and God is a God of mercy. And we need to be people who embrace those things and long for those things. As David came to the end of his prayer, I said he circled back around in awe of God's intimate knowledge of him. And he said, Lord, I want to continue in this, continue to know me. And if you and I commit ourselves this week to learning to pray from delight and dependence. We will be in awe of who God is. We will be in awe of the God who knows us. And we will desire to be known further still. So let's pray.